open God's Word this morning, would you do me a favor and grab your bulletin? If you didn't get a bulletin, perhaps you'll have uh, someone close to you and you can read along with me. Open your bullet and look on the second page at the, at the bottom. And I want to highlight a, a really, really important announcement and, and uh, just kind of build on what BJ shared with us a few moments ago uh, concerning uh, the adoption of Malachi and the Van Werven family. On August the 6th, uh, the Van Wervens invite the church family, that's you, to dinner at their house to celebrate the adoption of Malachi. And what, what better way to show your love and support for the Van Werven family as well as Malachi by uh, coming and sharing a meal together and uh, celebrating this great time. So I want to invite you uh, to that event. I want to do something a little bit different this morning and have you turn to two passages in the Word of God. Now, the first passage that we will look at is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. And then the, the passage uh, for the exposition of God's Word this morning will come in John, chapter 16. John, chapter 16. From time to time, preachers will think of something on the spur of a moment. And I'll say... Uh, on a fairly regular basis, that's what gets preachers in trouble when they move away from their notes. But as we were worshiping this morning, it was actually during the last song. And Jason, I want to thank you for um, reintroducing that song to us. Anything in my estimation by Stuart Townsend is going to be a good song. Uh, this is a man who writes God-centered worship songs. And as we were singing that song, something struck me that relates to the message this morning. I want to have you look with me at uh, just two verses in Ephesians chapter 6. These are words that have been working on me in a mighty way over the last couple of days. And I was just struck again this morning while we were singing of their importance. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Paul the Apostle says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You know, the word devil is something that we don't tend to talk about too much in our culture and even in the church. You will talk to the run-of-the-mill Christian, and, and I'm convinced that some Christians just don't believe in the devil. Because of the way they live their lives, because of the words that, that come forth from their mouths, what they believe about spiritual warfare, what they don't believe about spiritual warfare. But I want to begin this morning by reminding you that there is a real devil. And the Word of God tells us in emphatic terms that we are to, to put on, that's a commandment, to put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. You think about the various schemes of the devil. In 1 Peter chapter 5, the Apostle Peter says that the devil roams around like a lion looking for someone to devour. Who is that someone? That someone is you. The devil is not concerned about the world. The devil is not concerned about pagans. He has them. They're on his team. But the devil is, is seeking to devour you. And so I want to remind you this morning of, of these very important realities and also remind you that as, as we begin to unpack what Jesus teaches in John chapter 16, that what you're going to hear this morning concerning the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the devil hates. The devil hates me. The devil hates you. The devil hates the Word of God. And the devil will do anything in His power to prevent us from hearing the Word of God, from seeing and savoring the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm just convinced more than ever this morning that we, we need to fight with everything we have. That we need to be careful to, to pay close attention to the Word of God. If you're here this morning, I don't know what has me wound up, but if you're here this morning and, and you like to read the news on your phone during the preaching of the Word of God, would you do me a favor and just put the phone away? Check the scores later. Would you just set aside all the distractions and, and forget about what's happening in, in, uh, in this culture? Forget about what's happening in your oven at home. And can we take 
40 or 45 minutes or maybe longer to, to study the Word of God. So look with me at John chapter 16. John chapter 16, and we'll begin reading in verse 12, and as is our custom, would you stand with me out of respect for the authority of God's Word? John chapter 16, beginning in verse 12, Jesus says to His disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear to hear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, and He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. May God bless the reading of His Word. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning I pray that You would rivet our attention on Your Word. God, whatever the distractions might be, would you be so kind to remove those distractions? Sometimes we have distractions that are uh, no one's fault but our own. And we need to be disciplined this morning to remove those. And other times there are distractions that come. Uh, it has nothing to do with us. It just happens to, to land in our lap. And so I pray that you would remove those distractions as well. Help us. This morning, would you be gracious? Would you be merciful to help us pay close attention to your word? I'm reminded as we sang that last song that the devil hates the word of God. The devil hates the people of God and the devil will do whatever he can do to take our minds away from the truth that you want us to uh, understand, to embrace, to savor to apply to our lives this day. And so I ask God that as we uh, learn more about the work of the third member of the Godhead, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see and savor the word of God, that we would be excited by what we hear, that we would not be here out of duty, that we would not be here out of obligation, that we would do as the psalmist says, to delight in the word of God, to do as Jeremiah says, when I, I tasted your word, I ate them, I devoured your word. And so we come as the people of God, uh, ready and willing anticipating that you would do a, a terrific thing here in our presence. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of the message this morning is The Work of the Holy Spirit, and the subtitle is Guidance and Glory. I need to say by way of introduction that as we move through John chapter 16, that we come now to the, the final section where Jesus Christ will help his disciples understand the, the work of the third member of the Godhead. We're going to understand in a greater way the, the role of the Holy Spirit as he relates to the church. Last week we saw the role of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in the world in particular. And this week we'll see the role of the Holy Spirit in the church. But before Jesus competes, completes his, his teaching that concerns the Holy Spirit, he says something that uh, is fascinating, at least to me, and I hope that you would find it fascinating as well. And have you read with me in verse 12. He says to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear to hear them now. I think there's two reasons that Jesus says, listen, you guys can't hack it. You can't handle it. There's two reasons that they can't deal with it. And the first is this, is that the, the disciples, you see, were spiritually burdened. The disciples were spiritually burdened. And what we need to recognize is that we take 40 or 45 or 50 minutes in each small chunk of scripture but really if you think about this in the broad sweep that over the last probably four or five weeks or longer this happens in a period of just several minutes and so what we have learned over the last month or so we have seen this the the disciples learn about the betrayal of their buddy judas Think about this, is you're, you're walking along in the Christian life and you hear that one of your closest comrades is going to commit the sin of apostasy. 
That's the kind of thing you just don't pick up the phone and just talk to your next friend the next day, right? That's the kind of thing that causes you to sober up quickly. And so the disciples were spiritually burdened. They learn about the betrayal of Judas. They have learned also about Peter's denial. They have learned about the the departure of Jesus as he tells them over and over that he will be leaving shortly. They have learned about the animosity that they would soon experience in a more portrayed uh, and emphatic way as a result of following Jesus. Again, as we were worshiping this morning, I, I, I had this thought. If, if you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and you tell people about it, if you believe in a real hell that Kyle challenged us with this morning, if you believe in the authority of God's Word, if you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, if you believe that Jesus Christ will return for His church, if you believe these things and proclaim these things, guess what? You're going to hear about it. You're going to get it. You will, as 1 Timothy says, be persecuted for anyone who seeks to live a godly life will be persecuted. Not might be persecuted, but will be persecuted. And Jesus says in vivid terms to his disciples, it's going to get worse and worse. And so his disciples were spiritually burdened. There's more that they are burdened about. Their self-focus now turns inward. That's kind of a, a double way of putting it. They, they become self-focused. They, they turn inward and they're consumed with what, they, with what their life will look like, not only today and in the future. You can sum it up like this. Their sorrow gets the best of them. Have you ever been there? Just living your daily life, you experience Sorrow, And so the disciples were spiritually burdened. But there's a second reason that Jesus says, I have many things to tell you, but you're not going to be able to deal with it right now. The second reason is that the disciples were spiritually bereft. They were spiritually bereft. That is to say, they were lacking something. They were not only spiritually burdened, but they were bereft. That is, they were lacking something. And Paul the Apostle understood this when he told the believers in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 2... Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but by the spirit. That is the Holy Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Let me sum it up. This is what Jesus seeks to convey to the disciples. Apart from the permanent indwelling of the Spirit, which they had not yet experienced, that would come at Pentecost. Apart from the permanent indwelling of the Spirit, the disciples could not understand all that Jesus would teach them. And so the disciples find themselves in a position of being spiritually burdened and spiritually bereft. But the thought that struck me is this. Don't we worship a a kind and merciful Savior? Jesus understands that his disciples are struggling with these things. And so he does this. He leaves the disciples with a full measure of hope as he directs directs their attention to the future. He directs their attention. He directs their affections to what will soon happen. And this is a future that is where he promises the arrival of the Holy Spirit in great power. The question I want to wrestle with you today is this. What are the roles, and we're only going to look at two of them. What are the roles of the Holy Spirit in the church age? And Jesus makes these very clear as he explains these two roles to the disciples. Here's the first role. It will be the first heading in your notes. The first role that Jesus explains to his disciples is that the Holy Spirit will guide the people of God. And this is the, normally when Spence... Spence, would you do it for me? Spence, that sound that you make? Would you do that? Yeah, that's what Spence does when I say something like, the Holy Spirit will guide the people of God. Do you get it? Think about that. Because we're on the other side of the cross now. 
The Holy Spirit is guiding the people of God. Jesus tells the disciples, listen, men, very soon, this is what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come in great power and he will guide you. Look at it. Verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, this is future for the disciples. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. If you like to write in your Bible, would you mark up the word guide? Because that is an absolutely crucial word at this point. As we learn, the first major heading is that the Holy Spirit guides the people of God. Now, what I want to do for several minutes is walk you through six components of that guidance ministry. The first element, the first component of that guidance ministry that we need to recognize is that this is a guidance that is extraordinary. Let me put it in plain language. This is a guidance that will blow your minds. This is supernatural guidance. The word there in English comes from the Greek word to be guided, to be guiding motivation behind someone's actions. It means to guide in learning. It means to guide in explanation. It means to guide in instruction. Now, I want to share an illustration that will, will really touch the, the hearts of some of you, right? Not every illustration hits every person, right? And so this is an illustration you'll know in a minute whether it's going to pull at your heartstrings or not. It has to do with the Seahawks. See, those of you that went, ha, 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 like, whoa, it's already touched you. Those of you that are like... Who are the Seahawks? Well, talk to your neighbor. I want you to imagine that this afternoon you get a call from the chief executive officer of the Seattle Seahawks. And here is the message for you. They have heard that you're a fan and that next week at your convenience, you and your family are invited to Quest Field. And you are going to receive... For free, a tour of the stadium. How many would say that's good news? That'd be pretty cool, right? It gets better. You and your family will be guided only by one person. Russell Wilson is going to take your family onto the field where you can stand on the sidelines and ask any question that you would like. And then he's going to take you to... Only the Seahawks locker room, right? You could care less about the visitors locker room, right? So you're going to go to the best locker room in the NFL, and you're going to get to look around. You're going to get to open the lockers. You're going to see where the, the coaches work. You're going to see their office. You're going to see where Pete Carroll hangs out. You might even get a chance to meet him if he's not busy, right? And then you're going to get, get a chance to, to go into the inner workings of Quest Field. And then at the end of the tour... Russell Wilson is going to take you to the nicest place to eat in Quest Field. And it's on him. And you just get to sit for a couple hours with Russell Wilson and ask him question after question after question. Don't you think that would be an extraordinary guided tour? I mean, it would be the kind of thing that you would never forget. Right? Now think of it this way. Jesus tells his disciples, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. If you think it's exciting to have a guided tour of Quest Field from the best quarterback in the NFL, Russell Wilson, if you think that's exciting, wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And as I said earlier, now we're on the other side of the cross. The Holy Spirit has come. We're on the other side of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come. And the guidance, the ministry that he will engage in is extraordinary. Jesus tells the disciples that the Holy Spirit, who we have learned is the helper, the comforter, the guide, the counselor, the 
paraclete, the one who comes alongside to help us and to guide us, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the all-present, sovereign God will guide His people into the truth. Indeed, this is an extraordinary guidance. Wouldn't you agree? I want to ask this morning, are you in a position in your life, whether you're young or whether you're mature, where you're seeking the guidance of God? Maybe it's a career change that you're thinking about. Maybe it's wondering, who will I marry? Maybe it's, how can I survive this marriage? How will I ever make it? Perhaps you're wondering how I can restore a, a broken relationship. Perhaps you're trying to figure out how, how you can build a bridge to a non-believer. Whatever the question is, whatever, and I'm just giving you a few examples. There are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ways, thousands of ways that we can seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Know this, the promise that Jesus made to the disciples is this, the Spirit of God will guide you. He will lead you down a path for your good and for the glory of the Lord. This indeed is extraordinary guidance. There's a second component I want you to see. And that is that the guidance you'll receive from whom? I want to make sure everyone's with me. The Holy Spirit. And when we talk about the Trinity, we're careful to distinguish, you see. The Father has roles, the Son has roles, the Spirit has roles. Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal and co-eternal from all eternity to all eternity. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. But here we see the special role of the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit is that He will guide His people into the truth. That guidance, I want you to see, is always, always, always faithful to Scripture. The Spirit of truth, by definition, will never, never, never lead His people astray. It never ceases to amaze me. What will come from the, the mouths of some people when they give credit for the guidance that they have received from the Holy Spirit. I heard one individual say something like this. Are you ready? Will you do this with me? I, I, do, I used to do this when I was a youth, youth pastor. Would you put your seatbelts on? Just See, all the kids love to do it. See, they did it, right? The rest of you, click it on. Leave it on here for just about 20 seconds. You're going to need it if you've never heard this. Pastor, the Spirit of God told me to divorce my wife and marry the woman I'm committing adultery with. Now, there's pretty basic pastoral counsel for that. It goes something like this. The Spirit of God did not tell you that. I will guarantee you, the Spirit of God did not tell you that. This guidance that we receive from the Holy Spirit is always, always, always faithful to Scripture. Remember this principle. The Holy Spirit will never, do, never instruct you to do something that is contrary to the Word of God. Why? Jesus says it very plainly. He is the Spirit of truth. He is the Spirit of truth. Therefore, the Holy Spirit, by definition, cannot contradict Scripture. In fact, I'll put it this way. I'll be so bold to say the Holy Spirit doesn't have the ability to contradict Scripture. The Holy Spirit doesn't have the ability to go against Scripture. It is not in His nature. Moreover, the Holy Spirit will never add to Scripture. The Holy Spirit will always guide us into all truth. That is to say, His guidance is always faithful to Scripture. And so, by way of practical application, pay attention to the Holy Spirit. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth. And I say this tongue-in-cheek, and I think you'll understand what I'm saying, so I might have to apologize in advance. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit, not the pepperoni pizza you ate last night. Does that make sense? Because sometimes our emotions get the best of us. So be careful to cast aside any counsel that is inconsistent with sacred Scripture. Feelings, while important... Did everyone hear that? Feelings... 
That comes from a left brain, very logical, analytical kind of a person. I can't believe I'm saying it, but it's true. Feelings are vitally important. As important as they are, our feelings should never dictate the decisions we make in life. Rather, the Word of God, directed and prompted by the Spirit of God, should be our primary motivating factor. Look at the third component with me. And that is that guidance from the Spirit always exalts Scripture. This is closely related to the second point, but the Holy Spirit gives us guidance that always exalts Scripture. The Spirit of truth guides the people of God by, by pointing us to the Word of God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20 says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. It is the Spirit of God who helps us to understand the Word of God. It is the Spirit of truth who inspired the Word of God. You remember 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul says, How much Scripture is breathed out? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It is the Spirit of truth who came upon the writers of Scripture. It is the Spirit of truth who came in great power on Moses. It is the Spirit of truth who came with great power on King David. It is the Spirit of truth who came with great power on King Solomon and Paul and Peter and the Apostle John. It is the Spirit of truth now who illuminates Scripture. One writer says it is because the Spirit moved the hearts and the minds of the writers of Scripture so that when they wrote what they wanted to write, did you hear that? So when they wrote what they wanted to write, that is, freely, that is, as they wrote the truths that were on their hearts with words and grammar and syntax, word order, that they chose to use, the Spirit was working in them so that what they wrote was simultaneously their word and God's word. And so you ask this question. It's one of my all-time favorites. Who wrote the word of God? The Holy Spirit. Or man? And the answer is yes. Everyone get it? This is the classic Baptist answer. Who wrote the Word of God? The Holy Spirit. Wrong. Right? Wrong. Confused. Who wrote the Word of God? The Holy Spirit and godly people. That's who wrote the Word of God. This guidance that exalts Scripture, you see, is all-encompassing. Jesus says that He, that is the Holy Spirit, will guide you into some of the truth, part of the truth. Jesus says all the truth. That is to say, it's all-encompassing. Now, this does not mean that we know then everything. Have you ever talked to a believer who knows it all? Wow. It doesn't mean that we know everything, but... As Francis Schaeffer once said, he said, We can know truly without knowing exhaustively. That's big. We can know truly without knowing exhaustively. Schaeffer goes on, God is not just telling a story. He's telling us what is really true to himself. What he tells us is not exhaustive because we are finite and we know nothing in an exhaustive way. But he tells us truly even the great truth about himself. And so by way of application, if the Spirit of God guides the people of God by pointing them to the Word of God, that means that we, as the people of God, should read the Word of God. That means that we should study the Word of God. That means we should meditate on the Word of God. That means we should memorize the Word of God. That means the book, the book needs to be a part of the daily fabric of our lives. You see this, the Spirit of God does not work in a vacuum. When I was a freshman at Multnomah University in 1985, I heard that phrase for the first time. And it's many of you are having the same thoughts that I had. The Spirit of God does not work in a vacuum. And all you can think of is a Hoover. You're like, what's he doing in the Hoover? And I think it took me 
months and months and months to figure out what, what my professor meant, that the Spirit of God doesn't work in a vacuum. What he meant was this, is if you don't know the info, the Spirit of God is not going to apply it to your life. Does that make sense? So when we say the Spirit of God doesn't work in a vacuum, we mean this. If you have not internalized the truth, the Spirit of God simply won't apply that truth. The Spirit of God guides the people of God by calling to mind what we've read, what we've studied, what we've prayed over, what we've meditated on, what we have memorized. We've said time and again, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform the people of God. And so this guidance always exalts Scripture. There's a fourth component, and that is the guidance that is delegated from God the Father and God the Son. When we think of the role of the Spirit, know that this guidance is a, it's a delegated guidance from God the Father and God the Son. Let me show you what I mean in verse 13. The, the bottom portion of verse 13, Jesus says, and we have to pay close attention, as we've done many times in the past, to the personal pronouns here. Jesus says, for he, someone help me, who's he? Father, Son, or Spirit? That's the Spirit. For he, the Spirit, will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Let me just say that John chapter 16, verses 12 to 15, is a uniquely Trinitarian passage. If you read through it carefully, you will see the Father, you will see, of course, the Son, and you will see the Spirit, who are all equal in essence and personhood. But I want you to notice something. It's something that I may not have taken the time to wrestle with were it not for a theological controversy that has become very popular in about the past six weeks. I alluded to it a few weeks ago. I want you to notice something in these verses, and that is I want you to notice the subordinate role that the Spirit plays in this passage. Now, I want to couch my language very carefully because it's kind of like when you go hiking in the Olympic mountains and you're, you're on a precipice. You have to be very careful or what's going to happen. I have a fear of heights. And so I try to stay away from the precipice, right? But if my buddy, and this has happened several times, if my buddy takes me to the precipice, I'm kind of doing this. And that's what I want to do right now when I say that the Spirit plays a subordinate role. We're walking on thin ice, and so we're very careful. This truth of the Spirit's subordinate role does not minimize His deity. It does not minimize His power. It does not minimize the fact that He is Almighty God. But Jesus here clearly indicates that the Spirit will not speak of His own authority. Jesus says that the disciples understand this reality in verse 15. It says, all that the Father has is mine. Think about it. Jesus says, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is mine that is the Holy Spirit, and declare it to you, which I believe helps to establish the authority of the Father and the eternal submission of the Son and the Spirit. This is what theologians recently have been calling the eternal relations of authority and submission in the Trinity, which not only help us to understand the very essence of God, but the E-R-A-S, as they put it, the eternal relations of authority and submission, give us a basic template for living our lives. That is one reason why wives are called to submit to their husbands. That is one reason why employees are called to submit to their employers. Why? Because we see a pattern in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, equal in essence in every way, that there is submission, and I believe eternal submission. The Son has always submitted to the Father, and the Spirit has always submitted to the Father and the Son. I say that in passing, but I want to move on and look at number five. And that is that guidance from the Holy Spirit is authoritative guidance. 
That is, when the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth, this is guidance that sticks. This is guidance that has the, the power and the, the authority that we need. And three times in this passage, I have the words marked up in my Bible. Three times Jesus uses the word declare. Do you see it there? To declare, which means to announce something. The word is found throughout the New Testament. In Acts 14, 27, when they arrived and gathered at the church, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. In Acts 15, 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Acts 20, 20. Paul says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house. Verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Here's the point. The Holy Spirit is never bashful about declaring the truth. He is never bashful about giving you guidance that is authoritative. Indeed, this is one of his roles. The way I want to apply this this morning is to simply ask, are you listening to the spirit of truth? Are you obeying the spirit of truth? Are you, are you sensitive to the spirit of truth? I had a dear friend of mine share a story with me just a few days ago. And it's a story that I, I'll keep very general because we, we put these messages on the World Wide Web. And even though he lives about 10,000 miles away... Uh, it's likely he could hear it, and he would not mind me sharing this story, but I don't think other people would want to hear it. But there was an episode where my buddy treated someone at, at a Costco in a very rude way. And the woman came back to him and confronted him, wagging her finger in his face and said, You owe me an apology. And he finally realized that he had treated her rudely and he knew that he was wrong. And what had happened here is we talked. I could sense that he was being sensitive to the Spirit of God. He shared with me how it had influenced the, the way he, he treats his family and all the people around. You know, when you make a bad decision, it just all the dominoes fall. And my counsel to my buddy was just talk it over with your wife. Ask for her forgiveness and move on. But most important, I asked, how is it that the gospel relates to this episode? How many of you have ever treated someone rudely? We all have. We've all said something that we, for some of it, oh, a millisecond after we say it, we know we shouldn't have said it. Others of us are a bit more thick skulled where three months down the road, we say, oh, I can't believe I said that. Well, our task then is to be sensitive to the Spirit. Are we listening to the Spirit of truth? Are we in step with the Spirit of truth? And what practical steps can you take in the coming days to recognize the voice of the Spirit of truth and rightly respond to Him? There's a sixth quality I want you to see, a sixth component, as we have said, and that is that this is guidance that reveals the plans and the purposes of God. Verse 13 in John 16, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will declare to you the things that are to come. And I simply want to say that 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, a verse like all the others that were inspired, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, says this, His divine power has given us Everything we need for life and godliness, who has called us by his own glory and goodness. And so we have seen six ways that the Holy Spirit guides the people of God. This guidance is extraordinary. This guidance is faithful to Scripture. This guidance exalts Scripture. This guidance is a, a delegated guidance that comes from God the Father and God the Son. This guidance is authoritative. And finally, this guidance reveals the plans and the purposes of God. My only question is in your Christian life today, are you are you walking by the Spirit? Are you listening to the promptings of the Spirit? And so the Holy Spirit not only guides the people of God, his ministry, I believe, reaches a crescendo in his final role that Jesus unpacks here as he does this. He glorifies the Son of God. The Holy Spirit glorifies the Son of God. Look with me at verse 14. 
Jesus says, and once again, pay close attention to the personal pronouns. He will glorify me. Or you could put it this way. The Holy Spirit will glorify the Son. The Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus for he The Holy Spirit will take what is mine, the Son's, and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The thought that struck me at this point is that the Holy Spirit has a very unique ministry. He not only guides the people of God, he glorifies the Son of God. And he does it by revealing the truth about Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're a Christ follower, you have experienced this where one day, it was a week ago, it was a month ago, it was 45 years ago, you heard the truth about Jesus. That is, the Holy Spirit revealed the truth about the Son of God. Now, as you well know, the the term glorify means to praise someone or to honor someone. And this is a lesson that I, I humbly say, because I have charismatic friends, you see, But this is a lesson that our charismatic brothers and sisters need to learn. The focal point, you see, is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is equal with the Son and the Father, but you see, the Holy Spirit is not the focal point. Jesus helps us to understand this important lesson when he says, The Holy Spirit, He will glorify me and He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so if you, find, if you find yourself attaching more importance to the gifts of the Spirit than the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're out of balance. Have you seen it happen in the charismatic movement where it's, it's all about the sign gifts? It's all about the spiritual gifts. And indeed, the spiritual gifts are very, very important and they're God-given. But when we maximize the gifts of the Spirit and minimize the person and the work of Jesus, whom the Holy Spirit is called to glorify, we're out of balance. The young people would say, we're out of whack, right? We're just out of whack. Once again, notice that the Spirit is in submission to the Son, and the Son, in turn, submits to the Father. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. But notice, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And the beautiful thing about this passage, and we'll see it as we come to John 17, is the interdependence of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Have you ever seen an argument among the members of the Godhead in Scripture? Here's a bold statement. It's never happened in redemptive history, and it never will happen Today or into the future in redemptive history. Why? Because the Father, Son, and the Spirit are in perfect harmony. They're in perfect harmony. And there's a model there for the local church, is there not? Is we are called to live in harmony, in unity, in peace with one another. But the key truth to grasp here is the Spirit's role in glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus teaches his disciples a crucial lesson, and I believe in turn, he teaches us a very important lesson. Here's the truth point. And my suspicion is most of you have already put this together, and that is that the Holy Spirit guides the people of God, and the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son of God. This morning I have challenged you in many different ways to listen to and to heed the voice and the promptings of the Spirit. But there's a final challenge that I want to leave with you today. As the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus, so too are the people of God called to glorify Jesus. Anytime we are admonished to glorify Jesus, our minds, in, in my mind, in my estimation, should automatically turn to question number one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That is stated as follows. What is the chief end of man? The answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. One of my favorite Puritan writers, Thomas Watson, reminds us that glorifying God involves at least four very important things. He says that glorifying God, first of all, involves appreciation. 
And I, I think this is a question that many of us are asking as, as we hear it over and over and over again. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Glorify God in all things. But as a pastor, my passion is this, is to help bring the cookies to the bottom shelf. What does it look like to glorify God? Watson says the first thing is appreciation. He says to glorify God is to set God highest in our thoughts and have a high esteem of him. Think about this. Is God highest in your thoughts or is the first NFL game highest in your thoughts? Is God highest in your thoughts or is that steak dinner highest in your thoughts? Is God highest in your thoughts or is that impending marriage highest in your thoughts? Is God highest in your thoughts or is the new car highest in your thoughts? Psalm 92.8 says, But you, O Lord, are on high forever. Watson continues. He says, We glorify God when we are God admirers. When we are God admirers, when we admire his attributes, which are the glistening beams by which the divine nature shines forth, his promises, which are the charter of free grace and the spiritual cabinet where the pearl of great price is hid. Watson says the second way we glorify God is through adoration. Through adoration. Psalm 29 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Third, Watson says, We glorify God via affection. Affection. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 says, That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and all your might. That is, as Watson says, to love God is to glorify Him. To glorify God is to love Him. He who is chief in our happiness has the chief of our affections. And the final thing that Watson shares, and I close with this, is subjection. Subjection. Watson says, This is when we dedicate ourselves to God and stand ready dressed for His service. We glorify God when we are devoted to His service. Our head studies for Him. Our tongues plead for Him. Our hands relieve His members. Young people, as you go to Camp Gilead in just a few hours now, you will have a chance to participate in all of these things. And as you think about subjection, what you say with your mouths, what you hear with your ears, what you see with your eyes, where you go at Camp Gilead with your feet, the kinds of ways that you help people with your hands and lead them to an understanding of the living God, you will be glorifying God. I'm excited for the Camp Gilead team. I'm excited for for Kylie and for Scott Meyer in Mexico as they glorify the Lord there. This morning... You probably sense a certain amount of desperation from me. A certain uh, begging of you to draw near to the living God. I want to challenge you and plead with you to make it your aim to glorify the God of the universe. And I want to challenge you with a practical exercise by asking you this question. How can I glorify the Son this week? How can I glorify the Son this week? And sometimes we'll do these exercises and I'll give you a challenge and we say a word of prayer and we're out the door to live our lives. Today I want to do it a little bit different. Would you take out a pen? Or would you take out a pencil? Or if you have an iPad, whip out your iPad or your Kindle or whatever it is that you can make some notes on. And I want to challenge you to write down two or three ways that you can glorify Jesus this week. Perhaps it's a kind word to a friend. Perhaps it's an apology to a friend. Perhaps it's sharing a meal with someone. Perhaps it's sharing the word of God with someone. Perhaps it's walking over and and talking with someone that you haven't talked to in a while. Maybe it's a, a kind gesture. Whatever it might be, how can you glorify Jesus this week? As you're writing, I want you to think about this. And this just struck me as I was preparing. That if what you have written down is consistent with Scripture, if what you have written down is consistent with Scripture, here's the promise that Jesus makes. The Holy Spirit 
will guide you. It doesn't matter how difficult the task is or how easy the task is. The Holy Spirit will guide you because we know this. The gospel teaches us this. Without Jesus, we can do. That's the answer. Nothing. Without Jesus, we can do nothing. We need then the help of the Spirit. And so what you have written down, if it agrees with Scripture, the promise is the Holy Spirit will guide you. And you will. Here's the exciting thing. As the Holy Spirit guides you, you will partner with the Holy Spirit in glorifying the Son. Whoop! I can't believe I just did that. You're a bad influence on me, Spence. Think about it. If what you've written down agrees with Scripture, the Holy Spirit will guide you. And then when you do it, you glorify the Son. And when you glorify the Son, the world sees that Jesus is Lord. He sees that you live by a different set of priorities. The world sees that you then are a follower of Jesus because your passion is to glorify Him. Indeed, Jesus is a mighty Savior. He's worthy of your praise. He's worthy, young people, of your service. He deserves our full attention. He deserves our unwavering loyalty, obedience, and worship. It would be like this. As Dreen and I get set to, as, as the Clarks did, was it in the past or in the future, Marianne? Your 25th? Past, not too distant past. And Dreen and I getting ready to celebrate our 25th. It was like this. If I take Dreen to a nice dinner, and I'm talking about how wonderful she is, and gazing into her glossy eyes, and you know, all that goo goo stuff, right? If all of a sudden I'm looking up, right? And I'm not looking at her. I'm watching the ball game. And all the ladies are like, amen to that, Pastor. It happens all the time, right? If I'm trying to tell my wife how much I adore her and I'm watching the Mariners, what do I communicate to her? You're not as important as I'm trying to convey. And in the Christian life, our gaze needs to be set on Jesus. Our gaze needs to be set on the cross. And it is only through the person and work of the Holy Spirit that we have the ability, the inclination, the desire to even do such a thing. As the Puritans used to say, soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for leading us through uh, a very important passage. Uh, Lord Jesus, thanks for conveying these uh, weighty, weighty uh, realities uh, to your disciples, and not only your disciples, but to each of us who are Christ's followers. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you are in the business of guiding your people, that you are faithful to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we're excited about the Christian life. We're excited about the gospel. We're excited to see it spread in our community. I pray that you would help us to be obedient. I pray that you would help each of us who have taken this challenge to determine ways that we can glorify Jesus Christ, that those things would, in fact, be consistent with Scripture. And we bank on the promise, no matter how hard the challenge might be, no matter how hard or difficult the task might be, we bank on the promise of Jesus that the Holy Spirit now will guide us. Father, now as we lead, as we uh, sing this final song, may we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ with our, our lips, our eyes, and our ears. Whatever we do, whether we do it all for the glory of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.